All right, if you can have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to John chapter 21. We're going to look at John chapter 21 this morning. And the text we're talking about is describing the restoration of Peter. Over the past few weeks, we considered the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what took place at his crucifixion and over the resurrection weekend that we celebrated over Easter weekend. And now we're talking about different things that took place immediately after the resurrection. And you'll remember that Peter was one of Jesus's disciples. And as Jesus was about to be arrested, Jesus predicted that all of his disciples would fall away. And Peter was one of those. He even said, if everybody else falls away, I'm not going to fall away. These guys may bail out on you, but I will never fall away. And Jesus' reply to Peter was, tonight, this very night, you're going to fall away. You're going to deny me. And so this morning, we're going to look at John chapter 21. And we're going to see how Jesus restores Peter after he fell away. John 21, verse 1 says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, all these the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were all together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and they got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Let's pause here and understand what's taking place. Let's pray together. As the Lord reveals his word to us, Jesus, we thank you for this text and we thank you for what it means. We thank you for how it applies to us today. And we ask that you would be particularly present in your Holy Spirit, that you might teach us your word this morning, that you might grant us insight and wisdom and discernment and that you would shape our lives as a result of this text. In Jesus name. Amen. Anybody in the room fish? Any fishermen in the room at all? A few hands. A few hands. A lot of fishermen. Uh, I got a fly fishing rod a few years ago. I went to Israel and was with a guy who was the CEO of a fly fishing gear company. And uh, throughout the week as we were there, anytime we were near water, we would naturally talk about fishing. Uh, he, when I returned, sent me a, a, a couple of reels and a couple of nice uh, rods, and, and I've enjoyed fishing. When I go fishing, um, it's, it's with the goal of unwinding a little bit, and I, I'm not good enough to where when I go, I typically end up more frustrated uh, than I do uh, relaxed. Peter, when he says, I'm going fishing, uh, erase everything you know about fishing in terms of uh, how we would enjoy it as a hobby or as a recreation. Peter was a commercial fisherman. Peter and his partners, these people, the sons of Zebedee, they owned a fleet of boats and they would go out in the middle of the night and they would throw nets and they would catch fish uh, and then they would sell them. Uh, The village of Capernaum, where Jesus and Peter and their ministry was all based right here on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, was really a highway that connected Egypt to Damascus. And so think about a roadside 
rest stop highway. And Peter and his partners, as they caught fish at night, they would prepare them in the morning, clean their nets, and then they would immediately hand them over to those who would sell them to people walking by or riding by or going on their way from Egypt to Damascus, passing through Israel. That's what was taking place in this. And you'll remember in the very beginning of the Gospels, Jesus uh, in Matthew chapter 4, he calls to Peter and his friends as they're in the boats, cleaning their nets. Jesus cries out to them, follow me. And when he said, follow me, leave your nets, leave your boats, leave your family, leave your career. He was giving them a new future. He was giving them a new future. He was telling them, I want you to leave the business. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave the boats. I want you to leave your village that you're used to. I want you to leave behind your career and everything that you've done all of your life. And I want you now to follow me. How many of you could do that? You have a career. Maybe you've trained in it. Maybe you've spent years of education. Maybe you've gone to secondary education. And maybe you've gone on to get master's degrees. Or maybe you, you've gone on to seminars. Or you've gone to continuing training. Or, or in some way you have built a career and a life. And, and it's provided for you and your family. And that just if someone were to come along and say, I want you to follow me. I want you to leave what you're doing. I want you to stop what you're doing. I want you to follow me. And I want you to leave all that behind. There's a little bit of uncertainty in that. There's some fear in that. There's some, how will I provide? What, what's going to happen to my family? And what's going to happen to my kids? And, and what's going to happen to all that? And Peter experienced that fear. And yet, he knew who he was following. And so he left everything and he began to follow Jesus. But you know the story and you know what happened. Peter fell away. If you, if you uh, turn over to Matthew chapter 26 really quickly, a few books back uh, in the Gospels, Jesus is uh, instituting the Lord's Supper and he's having Passover with his disciples. And as they are experiencing this time, the night before Jesus was crucified, he said to them, every single one of you will fall away. Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. Uh, After they had sung a hymn, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter answered him, Even though everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. It's interesting to think that just a few hours later, a girl, a servant girl next to the fire during the trial before the priest with Jesus says, this this guy, he he was one of Jesus' disciples also. And Peter says, "I, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not with him. I'm just... I'm just here. A short while later, they heard him talking and and they said, surely you're one of his disciples. Your accent, it gives you away. You're a Galilean. We we can tell. And he says, no, I I don't even know this guy. Once again, they press and he says, the Bible says with an oath, I swear to you, I don't even know this person. And in the configuration of the high priest temple, there is a place in which Jesus could look up from the jail cell up to a hole in the ceiling, to the high priest, 
who was trying him, who was not allowed to be in the presence of criminals, lest he make himself ceremonially unclean before the Passover feast the next day, before the Passover the next day, was able to look at him, and Jesus was also able to make eye contact outside into the courtyard. And this is how that played out, where Jesus looks at Peter after his third denial, and the rooster crows. Have you ever said to yourself, I'm not going to fall away? I'm going to walk with Jesus. I'm not going to struggle. I'm not going to stray. I'm going to remain faithful and I will not fall away. Only to have circumstances and a situation arise and uh, conditions come up that, that squeeze you in such a way that you're surprised that moments later, the very person you said, I'll never uh, betray. I'll never fall away from him. You fall away. This morning, I want us to consider a few important questions. Are failures final? When you blow it in your faith, is it the end for you? Are failures final? Do, do temporary, momentary, occasional failures, does that mean I'm not a Christian anymore? What do I do when I blow it? Does that mean that I, I've um, sinned the unforgivable sin? Is there no grace left for me? Does failure mean that you're not saved? Are failures final? Another question this text helps shed light on is, can you outrun the grace of God? You know, often we, we categorize grace, uh, even amazing grace, as that which is powerful enough to save us and to rescue us when we're really lost and when we're really rebellious and, and when we first come to faith in Jesus, that that, that sort of amazing grace that is out poured on our life as sinners, uh, that, that we, that's not the same grace that sustains us in our life. Is that true? Is the grace that God exerts to save you more than the grace that is exerted to keep you in the faith? Another question this text sheds light on is how far can you run that you will not be pursued and that Jesus will not seek to restore you? How far is too far? If you're one of his children, if Peter, for him to say, I'm going fishing means I'm, I'm going back to my old way of life. I'm not following Jesus anymore. When you fail, how easy is it for you to revert to a previous lifestyle, to a previous way of life that you knew before you met Jesus? Can you lose your salvation? How vast is the mercy of God? How deep is the well? Of grace, And can I draw too much out of that well before it's exhausted? Do you ever ask, ask these questions? We were in Kentucky last week for a conference. And in catching up with friends, Julie and I, we used to live in, in Kentucky. We lived there in Louisville and went to seminary there and, and made a lot of great friends. And every year we go back to see a few friends. And there's a, a few families that we go visit every single time we're there. And, and one family in particular, we almost always stay with them. And just over the course of a few years since we saw them, they had adopted a child. And as they had adopted this uh, young boy, maybe six at the time they adopted him, I think he's eight now, uh, he struggles in assimilating and, and uh, knows that his new father is, uh, loves him very much, but also knows that he's firm and that he's a disciplined person and that uh, he, uh, there are rules and structure in this household. And, and I don't know, maybe a few weeks ago, he had broken one of these rules. And his brothers and sisters told him, you know, that's a rule you broke. 
And uh, his parents said, we're going to deal with this when we get home. And, and so he said, well, I'm going to run away. And so he runs away and he, he leaves the family at eight. And uh, his mother gets home and says, where is he? And they said, well, he ran away. So they look around the neighborhood and uh, they are scouring for him and they can't find him. And, and after dinner, they're getting nervous. They're getting worried. And an Oldham County police cruiser shows up a few hours later with his, two of them show up with his eight-year-old boy. He had knocked on a door of a lady a few miles away and said, I need a new family. (laughs) (laughs) I I ruined the one I had. Have you ever felt like that in your faith where you, you break faith? Maybe you say, I'll never fall away. Jesus, I'm never going to deny you. I'm never going to walk away. I'm never going to go back to the lifestyle I had. And then you, you break faith and in some way you mess up. And yet uh, you think to yourself, it's just as natural for any of us as it was for Adam and Eve in the garden after they took the fruit and they ate it for them to hide as they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. It's just natural for us to run from holiness, to run from God, especially after failure. And it is the inexhaustible mercy and grace of God that will pursue His own. He pursues His children who fall away. So Peter goes fishing. The disciples go with Him. And though Jesus has risen, there is a tension between Jesus and the disciples. You, you probably remember, we read it on Easter su- uh, Sunday at the resurrection. Uh, the angel announces to the women, go tell the disciples and Peter that he's risen. There is a separation between Peter and the disciples. That's not the same, it's not the same as Judas. In Matthew 26, I, I made a note Several years ago, as I was meditating on Matthew 26, Jesus predicts, one of you is going to betray me. And he talks about the language of betrayal. And all the disciples around the table, around the Lord's Supper, they say, is is it I? Am I going to betray you? Am I going to betray you? And, and, And that's a different category altogether. The betrayal of Jesus. You should categorize the betrayal of Jesus as the revealing that you never really knew him in the first place. Those who are saved are held. John 10 says that nothing can snatch them out of my hand. There is an assurance. You didn't do anything to earn your salvation. And so you can't do anything to lose your salvation if you're in Christ. But under certain conditions, there is the revealing of who you are. Hebrews says they walked away from us because they never knew us. They were never among us in the first place. John says that those who have uh, revealed that they are not yet believers, that they are not really regenerate, they are the ones who will fall away because they were never really of us in the first place. And it may take 20 years for a person in these pews who made a declaration of faith, who prays the prayers, who sings the songs, who raises the hands, who reads the Scriptures, who gets baptized, who walks with the Lord, who teaches Sunday school, there will be people that it is revealed that they never knew Him in the first place. And the fact that they betray or the fact that they walk away is revealing that they never knew Him in the first place. Why did all the disciples say, is it I? Am I the one? Think about it. It's because no one knew that Judas was the one who would betray. He looked just like all of them. None of them knew, but all of them knew they had the potential of betrayal. That's the difference. Betrayal is different 
than falling away. Jesus said you will fall away. It's better not to fall away, better not to betray. But if you're going to, it's better to fall away than to betray. Judas betrayed, Peter fell away. And the difference in the restoration of Peter and the loss of Judas is incredible. Judas, as a betrayer, lost everything. Was never restored. Was never redeemed. Never had this sort of effort on Jesus' part to restore him. Peter, on the other hand, look at how Jesus restores those who fall away. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that this was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, John 21, verse 5, Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. They'd been fishing all night. Interesting note. They went back to their old way of life. They went reverted back, and, and yet what they had done for a living, though it was comfortable, though it was natural, they could do this at any moment. They could pick right up and get right back into this fishing trade. There seemed to be no life in it this night. Have you ever experienced that when uh, you struggle in your faith and you revert back to ways you're hiding in some way and the things that you used to run to, they don't seem as fun anymore. They don't seem to produce any sort of life, any sort of hope, any sort of joy. They produce really zero fruit as a Christ follower in this slid, backslidden, fallen away state. The things that you once ran to will hold no hope for you. There will be no joy for you. There will be no life in the life that you used to live. It will bring nothing to you. And Peter and his disciples experience a taste of this as they have nothing to show. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And so they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the huge quantity of fish. This reminds them when Jesus called them in Matthew 4, he said, come follow me and leave all that behind and I will make you fishers of men. I'm going to make you fruitful in another way. You're going to catch, not fish, but you're going to, you're going to catch men and help them have a restored relationship with me. And so when Jesus fills their net in one single cast, they catch more fish than they had all night. Verse 7, the disciple that Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, for some reason he puts on his outer garment. I don't understand this. When you're going to dive in the water, you typically shed a layer or two, but I don't know why. This is just a Peter moment. He throws clothes on and he jumps in the water. It says he had been stripped for work. I don't know what he's covering. I don't know why he's, I don't know what he's doing. But he, he, he puts on his outer garment and he throws himself into the sea, verse 7 says. The other disciples just row in. <laughs> it just makes sense, right? Just going to row the boat in. And they're watching Peter like flailing next to them as they row past him. Uh, and they're dragging the net full of fish <clears throat> because they're not far from the land, just about 100 yards away. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish already laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And so Simon Peter went aboard. So he's back in the boat now uh, with the wet outer garments. And he hauls the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many of them, the net 
was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. It's another one of these interesting things in this resurrected Jesus. They don't necessarily recognize him. They don't know who he is. They, they, they see him. They understand it's Jesus, but it doesn't look like Jesus. It says in verse 12, none of them dared ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And so Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And here's an interesting note. Peter had fallen away. Peter had fallen away. And, and Jesus, in an effort to restore him, comes near to him. Within proximity. Jesus begins to work. Jesus begins to build a fire. Jesus begins to make provision. Jesus is within a glance of them. From the boat, they can see this person. Jesus comes close. I think it's interesting what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't walk on the water to them as he had done before. He doesn't get in a boat and go right up next to Peter. In this time of restoring Peter, Jesus comes near Jesus comes close. Jesus comes within proximity. But He doesn't go right up to Peter and He doesn't go right out to him. In the seeking and the restoration of a fallen away believer, God will often work around them. He will often work in their midst, but maybe not personally with them. Showing them Himself. Revealing parts of Himself. Restoring them. Drawing them in. This is why church attendance is so important. All around the room, there are believers who have fallen away. God is at work in the midst of this room. All all around this room, people are hanging, listening to what the Holy Spirit is saying, asking these same questions I'm asking. Is there grace enough to restore me? And at the same time, there are people who are listening intently. There are others who are still one ear in, one ear out, maybe checking their phone, maybe looking at other things, and, and, and they're still in the fallen away, hiding place, and yet... Here Jesus is in your midst, working around you, working near you. And, and you're asking the question with one ear in and one ear out, is, is there grace for me? Is there grace for me? I'm not really listening, but I'm kind of listening. <laughs> Maybe I've blown it. Maybe I've sinned and run too far. Jesus begins to work around the disciples. Look at verse 15. Jesus closes in. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than all these? It's using intentional language. Peter said, even though all of these fall away, I'm not going to fall away. All of these fell away, and even Peter. And so Jesus is sort of putting his pride back in his face. You said none of these, all of these would fall away, but you wouldn't. Do you love me more than all of these? Is this a contest for who can love me and serve me the most? Is this about you? What is this about? And, and he's asking him, do you love me more than any of these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He asked him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He says to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Echoing the three denials. Here are these three affirmations. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. What's with this painful process of restoration? Any believer knows that if they've fallen away, the further they have fallen away, 
The process of restoration is painful. Though Jesus is merciful and though there is grace, there is still a painful process of restoration. When I was 16, I worked at a golf course. And when I worked at this golf course, I had often I was my job was to mow the greens in the morning and then go to lunch and then come back after lunch. And then I was supposed to water the greens. Now, in Redneck, Oklahoma, uh, to water the greens, we would often take off our shoes and walk around and feel for hot spots. So I'm walking around the green barefooted, feeling around for the hottest spots because it's 120 degrees outside and, and they don't want the greens to burn up. And so if no one's around, we'll take off our shoes, we'll walk around, we'll feel for hot spots, and then we'll put water all over the green and all over the hot spots so they stay, they stay green. In the process of that, uh, on that particular day, there had been a chemical applied to dry out a certain fungus that was plaguing the greens uh, around the golf course. And this fungus was to uh, heat up and accelerate the drying process in some way. And after I had watered maybe 10 or so greens after two or three hours after lunch, my supervisor rode by in a golf cart and he said, hey, don't take off your shoes today. We put this chemical on and, and you're going to get burned. And I happened to have my shoes on at the moment. And I said, OK, good note. I won't do that. And yet in my mind, I think I already did that <laughs> for like the last three hours. I've been doing that. And so I kept my shoes on the rest of the day, went home, clocked out, went out with friends. And at 10 o'clock at night, I, I took my shoes off and and instantly I knew something was bad wrong. Uh, as I took my shoes off, I could see the entire top of my foot was just a, a blister that was rising. Uh, and the entire top of my feet had blistered up, one huge blister. And so the next day I, I went to a trauma unit and uh, they looked at my feet and they, they said, we're just going to have to clean this. And so uh, they left the room and, and he came back in and with him were three other nurses and they begin to get around the table, and I don't know what's happening, but they, they, one person is positioning themselves on my shoulder, another is grabbing my arm, another is laying on my legs, and I'm getting the impression that this is going to hurt. And, <laughs> and literally, the doctor comes up behind me and wraps a, a couple of suppression sticks with gauze and puts it in my mouth. And I'm thinking, oh, what are they about to do? What's about to happen? And they take out scissors and they begin to cut all of that skin off, the blisters off my feet. And as they did that, they worked for a, a little while. And then he, after it was 30 minutes of cleaning that, that wound, he pulled out what looked like a Brillo pad. And on that sensitive skin began to scrub and cleanse all that flesh. Now you're I see you in your seat just wanting me to get the story over. I had to go through this, right? This was me experiencing this. And, and it was the worst hour of my life. And as it was over, and as these exhausted nurses had been trying to hold me down this whole time, as all that finished up, he, he left me with the instructions, now go home and repeat this process three times a day. <laughs> For the next eight weeks. And so I did. And the first time I got home that night, the first time I filled a little bathtub full of warm water and, and got out the scrub pad and began to scrub around those places, it was just so painful. It just hurt so bad. And then over the next few days, as I continued to do it two, three times a day, 
It just didn't hurt as bad. And over the course of four or five, six weeks, uh, it got to a point where I could see that there was health. There was renewed uh, skin. It was growing back and it was growing back healthy. Why do I tell you that horrible story? Why do I relive that story every once in a while? I do it because it demonstrates the process of restoration. The doctor said it's vital that you do this. If you want to have health, if you don't want more problems, if you don't want us to have to come back in and redo this process again, it's vital that you keep this clean and that you allow clean skin to grow and that you make sure you go through this process. Do not, you do not want this to happen again. And I said, yes, I don't. I don't want this. And so why did I go through the daily pain of clean, cleaning this out? I did it for restoration. I did it for restoration. The process of restoration is painful. It's very painful. You, you right now, God may be calling you to confess something. And you think, oh, I could never do that. I could never do that. I could never confess the ways in which I've run. I've reverted back to old ways of life. I've, I've left Jesus and, and now I've backslidden into this lifestyle, into this situation. And, and God may be saying as a part of your restoration, as a part of this, I want you to cleanse Cleanse this wound and I want you to, to confess. I need you to publicly repent and maybe confess to a friend. Maybe you need to go home and, and maybe you need to flush some things down the toilet or maybe you need to pour some things down the sink or maybe you need to, to, to erase uh, some things. Maybe you need to give away some things on social media. Maybe you need to, to uh, uh, ask somebody to hold you accountable for the things that you're watching, for the places you're going for the shows, for the things that, in whatever way you've reverted, part of the restoration is painful but necessary if you want to live a restored, cleansed, godly life. Are failures final? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. If you are in Christ, no failure is final. Can you outrun the grace of God? He will pursue. He will pursue and pursue and pursue to restore you if you are His. You can't hide far enough that he will not pursue you if you are his. How vast is the mercy of God? How deep is that well? Can you draw out more, so much grace before it's emptied? Absolutely not. He never changes. He never changes. To the degree that he's merciful, there is no more room for him to grow in the attribute of mercy. He is perfectly merciful. Our friend when their child was restored. They brought him back in the house. The policeman left. They sat him around. The kids cried. Why didn't you love us? Didn't you love our family? Why did you leave us? We love you. You're, you're our brother. The dad said, you're my son. I adopted you. You're my, you're my kid. You're one of us. You don't need a new family. You have the family. You, we've provided for you. We've got... Everything you need here, all the love, all the support, all the strength, you don't need a new family. You've got it all right here. And through that painful process, they restored this precious eight-year-old boy. Listen, is God saying the same thing to you today? Do you have a family? It's right here. There's grace in this room. There's grace enough. Uh, If you've run from God, you can't outrun the grace that He has to restore you. And though it may be painful for a moment, there's forgiveness And there's joy in the morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for not just the grace that is demonstrated 
at our salvation, but we thank you for the grace that is exerted to keep us. Your word says in Philippians that he who began a good work in you will finish it to the day of completion. In Revelation, you tell that those who overcome, that those who endure till the end will be saved completely. Lord Jesus, thank you that when we stray, that you are there to restore. And I pray that for those who have strayed in the room, for those who are about to stray, for those who have strayed, that you would call them home this morning, that they might repent of their sins and come to know you in a deeper way. We pray, Lord Jesus, also that for those who might not know you in the room, as many as 20 to 40% of this room may have never put their faith in you at all. May they see something beautiful in you today, that you are the God who restores and pursues and graciously renews. I pray, Lord Jesus, that they would be wooed by the amazing love that you have for us, that they would seek to know you and to follow you and to pursue you. Lord, may we never say, I will never fall away, but may we also help those who have, you say in Jude, to snatch those away who are falling. Would you give us the kind of congregation that picks up those who are straying, restores them, renews them, and strengthens them. Let this be a body of grace today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.